I definitely always try to to do two things. I really sort of see the value of raising money around. One is reducing the risk for yourself. I mean, these things are ventures. I've always said venture is just adventure. It's just the A and the D fell off somewhere in the process of um, of the years. Um, but I think reducing a bit of that personal risk. Um, but also ideally bringing in some more smarts, expertise or networks or access to the market, not just through the money, but through the types of investors that you bring on board. And I think that's, um, that's pretty well understood now, but in my early yeah. ventures that was, um, that was not necessarily as clearly linked. So a lot of people just looked for people with lots of money, and certainly a lot of people with lots of money often just looked for, for you know, ventures that they sort of had an inkling would be, would be successful. Um, and there wasn't really an intertwining of the two, but um, uh, I've raised a, a number of, I think I added it up last year, probably around $40 million uh, in total across a number of companies in terms of direct involvement and, and fundraising over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, which is, which is not a lot compared to, to some people, but it's enough to learn a few tricks. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of Want Money, Got Money. I'm your host, Sam Kamani. Today, I'm interviewing a very special guest, John Holt. John founded Kiwi Lending Pad along with Sam Morgan and with active support of the New Zealand government as well as investors such as Sir Stephen Tindall, Phil Mackow, Simon Holdsworth and Craig Elliott. John is also on the board and committee of multiple other startups and organizations. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the show, John. You are a serial entrepreneur. You have founded multiple startups. You have had multiple exits. From what I understand, you have managed to raise funding for multiple ventures and you do so much for the tech startup community here in New Zealand. So just wanted to find out what you are working on these days. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me along. So I believe that staying young is, is really all about variety. So I try and keep my hand in, in things that are, are quite diverse. And also, I believe that they have to be fun. So that's my combo, fun and variety. So to answer your question at the moment, I'm passionately involved in a charitable trust called Free For All. Uh, freeforall.co.nz. Yeah. The wonderful team in Putty yeah. Apps in, in Auckland have that was our for good project. I'm the chair and a shareholder in in, uh, in Putty. That was our for good program the year before last. That's a charitable trust that's focused on waste reduction, waste minimisation. So a lot of people don't know, but 75% of waste um, in landfill is actually perfectly yeah. reusable items, mostly household yeah. items, books, toys, games. So we have started a supporting a fantastic social entrepreneur, Dee Glentworth, out in Poirua here locally in Wellington with a national website. So everyone can get involved on freeforall.co.nz if they've got anything they want to, to share with people. But it's actually all about people basically repurposing items rather than throwing them away into landfill so that we get this wonderful dual effect. So it's been, it's been a really interesting journey being involved in that deeply. I'm the chair of the Charitable Trust. I'm still involved in some board activity. I'm on the board of Airways New Zealand, so we're a air navigation services provider, ANSP. So we run about 30 million square kilometres of airspace. Quite a large organisation, about 750 staff. Obviously, significantly impacted by our friend COVID-19. <laughs> um, so that's been it's been interesting as the director, both of Airways and just observer and, and involved in the aviation industry and the challenge facing that. 
And I'm also working on a new venture, getting back into the trenches as a founder. It's an idea um, and a vision that I've had for a number of years now, and I've shared it with you quite deeply and, and had your input yes. into it, which is fantastic. But um, it's called Purpose Exchange. Yep. We have a, a, a preliminary website up called purposeexchange.com, and it's really all about helping companies and consumers come together around what these different companies and brands are doing to help address these universal problems we have around social and environmental issues. So Generation Z in particular, which I think should be a big interest point to a lot of entrepreneurs because that's that's the sort of consumer sweet spot in, in probably five to ten years in terms of spend, in terms of percentage of consumers looking for solutions to problems they have. They're the most purposeful generation we've ever had on the planet. So they look for companies who are involved in um, producing good products and services, but also actually they're looking at the purpose of the companies. And better than generations like mine who will raise an eyebrow at these things, they will actually actively direct their dollars and their time to different companies if they're not happy with the way that those companies behave from a purpose point of view. So it might be the best product or service, but they will actually actively not choose to support those companies. It's quite hard for them to do that research these days because companies quite understandably put their products and services on their main website and their main pages. And often their, their views and their purpose around sustainability and, and giving to the community are a little bit hidden away uh, on the website, but in different tabs and so forth. So a really inconsistent consumer experience, trying to understand what these companies are doing. So Purpose Exchange brings that all together creates a company uh, page on the exchange, but it's really just focused on, you know, this sustainability, society and environmental initiatives um, and puts the product and service to one side. Very excited about that. And then on the tail end of the early stage of parenthood, Sam, five children, youngest now 13, and three years of the end of this year, basically out into the young adult world. So we're graduating as parents. Graduating. Yeah. <laughs> from the early stage of parenting. I understand from parents later down the stage that we've still got a bit of involvement to have, um, which would be cool, but um, uh, not changing nappies or attending lots of you know school functions. Yeah, that's where I'm at. And, um, and of course, Kiwi Landing Pad finally, but not by at least last, is, is a thriving community 10 years old this year. And that was a 20-year vision for me about seeing whether we could meaningfully play a role in the impact of technology and innovation on New Zealand's economy and the people in general. So that's that's been a wild ride. We're just reimagining that at the moment. So if I had an ask, yes. it would be um, anyone who has any ideas, particularly young entrepreneurs, about capability or things that are missing in the system. There's a lot of support out there, but yes. um, we can always do better. And we're just reimagining how we focus Kiwi Landing Pad for, including probably a name change, because let's face it, with the pandemic, there's not a lot of landing going on now. So uh, <laughs> probably going to be inappropriate for a wee while. It- Kiwi Landing Pad has done such good things for the Thanks. New Zealand's tech community. And over the last 10 years, I have used it on multiple occasions. Every time I've been in San Francisco, I've used Kovo and thanks to the connections for Kiwi Landing Pad. And I've been there. And back then when Sean Simpson was involved and used to yep. like do entrepreneur dinner type thing once a month, whenever, and it used to go to those sort of things. So yeah, it's, it's great. It is, it's a wonderful community that you have created with that. L- looking back at your entrepreneurship journey, how did it all get started or what was your first venture? My first venture was actually a lemonade stand when I was eight years old outside my house. 
And I only tell the story because I find it amusing, but I had what I thought at that time was an unfair advantage. Lemonade stands were quite um, regular then, but my grandmother's cousin uh, drove the number two bus that went past our house. He would There was no bus stop across the road from our house, but he would stop the bus on very hot days, um, basically implying that people should uh, get out briefly and, and buy some lemonade from this very serendipitously placed uh, lemonade stand. So that was my first entree into sort of primary junior entrepreneurship and then a computer consulting business in the last year of school. Back then, a very different tech environment. It was around things called Novell Networks. Yep. I don't know. You, you remember I, have, I have seen the logo back in the days on the black and white screen or the green and black screens, the, yeah. the Novell Networks logo. <laughs> yes, yeah. I am a yeah. dinosaur. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm right with you there. And showing both our age, this was when the word processor of the day was called Word Perfect. And the, yes. the best version of it, you could choose from 12 graphical images that you could select a command that would actually appear on your dot matrix printed paper. I know I've lost half the audience here in terms of what on earth is even dot matrix. But. So yeah, so those are my early ventures. And, and then I had a security company that I um, created with, a, with another uh, friend of mine at university. So we we got into physical security. So it hasn't all been around software and tech, but I think that's what makes you uh, more robust and a better entrepreneur at the end of the day, getting into the sorts of industries. Absolutely. Um, you, you said it pretty much that, you know, that all that variety does make you a better entrepreneur. The other thing that I have often seen with entrepreneurs is that they are really good at selling, whether it is selling their ideas, concepts, vision, mission, whatever it might be, not necessarily a product. What was the first sort of the significant thing that you sold? Yeah. So um, again, bringing us back into prehistoric times, I used to get a magazine religiously from America, a magazine for those of you not of the age of Sam and I as a a, paper bound document, which you had lots of stuff and a little bit like Wikipedia or Facebook or stuff. And and I saw one day a, a new style of computer. So it wasn't a big box that sat on your desk. It was mm-hmm. called the brick. And the concept of the brick was that you would, the brick was about the size of a telephone book. Again, uh, apologies for those who haven't actually ever had a telephone <laughs> book, but back in the day, big, thing, probably about this big. And, and the idea was that it was so expensive to get anything portable as a computer that the, the most, the cheapest portable computer when I was looking at this about 1988 was $36,000. And this brick... Uh, In today's was, money, that would be massive amount. That would be yeah. like $100,000. <laughs> yeah, it would but, be, right? And yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you could be portable, but you just couldn't afford to live in a house or anything else around it. <laughs> so these people came up with this cool idea of this brick. It was, it was quite a nice looking device. It was graphite and color. And the idea was that you bought a monitor. And again, monitors, uh, we're talking about CRT monitors, CRT. ray tube monitors which are massive. And so you would have a monitor at your work and a monitor at your house and a keyboard and you would just conveniently put this brick in your briefcase. This is all old glossary. People are going to have to look this up, but in your briefcase and carry the brick computer between the two locations. So I was the reseller for New Zealand for that and that was my first real sales job. I sold three of them um, and all up if you bought the monitors and and keyboards off me, they were about $18,000 each. (laughs) <laughs> and that was a 486SX, Sam. So yes. I think that's probably about less than 5% of the power of an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. 
if that yeah yeah so now that is a very interesting story but on the positive side if you did carry that brick around you would definitely get a workout <laughs> incidental right. exercise I didn't actually sell that feature sam that's very i thought of, i wish you were back there back then i could have uh, integrated that wellness <laughs> side of it as well yes side. yes <laughs> So but now, yeah, it's hard selling, isn't it? I mean, it's, I was literally just putting ads in the newspaper and the computer page, which was quite a big page back then, and just you yeah. know, wide range of people inquired. Some completely nuts with no money, and yes. others, you know, just there's no other word to put it. They were early adopters. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. Cool. What about for some of your ventures? Um, have you ever raised money or funding for them, or <clears throat> did you always self financed? No, I definitely always tried to do two things. I really see the value of raising money around. One is reducing the risk for yourself. These things, ventures, I've always said venture is just adventure. It's just the A and the D fell off somewhere in the process of, of the years. But I think reducing a bit of that personal risk, but also ideally bringing in some more smarts, expertise or networks or access to the market, not just through the money, but through the types of investors that you bring on board. And I think that's that's pretty well understood now, but in my early yeah. ventures that was that was not necessarily as clearly linked. So a lot of people just looked for people with lots of money. And certainly a lot of people with lots of money often just looked for ventures that they had an inkling would be would be successful. And there wasn't really an intertwining of the two. But I've raised a, a number of I think I added it up last year, probably around forty million dollars in total across a number of companies in terms of direct involvement and in, in fundraising over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, which is not a lot compared to, to some people, but it's enough to learn a few tricks. It is. And also you have done it across a number of different industries and different mm. niches and different markets around like globally. Yeah. So that you would have so many war stories, I'm sure from that. <laughs> if you had to give, I don't know, one or two quick lessons to someone just starting out, what do you think their first step should be? If say they have a MVP, they have few users, they want to go down this route of funding, what should they do? Yeah, I think one of the key things I see um, in my former self and certainly when I'm trying to help others around this is really doing more work than I normally see around identifying the type of investor that would fit your your hmm. venture or your stage. So that's it really. Uh, startup is obviously pretty self-explanatory, but even then, a lot of companies I see would describe themselves as startups even five or 10 years down the track with a number of customers and a number of insignificant revenue it's a little bit more obvious now, really finding, and, and, and also investors realise this too, so they publish a lot more of this information, but really finding a hunting ground for aligned investors in terms of the mm. stage that they invest in. A lot yeah. of them are really great in the sense that they're not great in the sense that they're not in your stage, but they publish this information and they say, we invest at a Series A level. And even better, they often, because Series A got very broad as well, they often just say, that's you know, more than a million dollars of, of revenue and a growth rate of this and, and, and they really spell it out because it's a real mm. waste of time for both parties, especially to your question when you're early, you've got a prototype, you've probably worked on that either full-time and the consequential results in terms of your bank balance. So you've got a lot of pressure to get to that next stage or get some financial help or you're trying to make that leap into the venture full-time by getting some funding support. So you really don't have a lot of time in either sort of scenario. But to me, back to your question, it's, it's about making that list, um, being smart about doing the research about it so that you actually have 
less potential investors to talk to on it rather than more. To me, it's not a game of quantity, it's a game of quality. And I think investors will respect you for that as well if you've done that research and you can say to them, I'm coming to you with this stage of, of venture in this type of industry solving this sort of problem because I see from your website or I hear from people that you have worked with before that this is an area that's of interest to you. And here's why I think my particular venture will will be something worth listening to. Um, that's what I would do. That is excellent advice that less is more in a way. Quality over just quantity. It's not a shotgun approach. You just reach out to everyone and then that would just add so much more time as well. Um, yeah. So I yep. think I think just one point to that founders uh, even more important to me about that is I think the same applies for sales. Getting early sales um, and spending the time because they don't all just close instantly. Spending the yes. time on really well qualified prospects who really do have the pain, really do have not just the ability to to purchase the solution, but to purchase it from you. Yes. And this is where I really learned a few lessons in the early days of our, my first startup um, with two others, Sonar 6. We got a lot of interest from very large companies in the UK and we only had about four or five customers. And and the person that we were dealing with making a huge amount of um, positive sounds about the problem they had, how they could see us solving this, even with our very rudimentary early approach and product. But then a reality, probably about six months later, that they were in the HR team and an enterprise business does not buy stuff in terms of the full process from an HR team. There's a, there's a chief financial officer, there's a procurement department, and they just simply never, ever were going to have the rules to permit an acquisition of, of products or software from three three people working on doors because we ran out of money for desks out of Auckland for a London enterprise company. Yeah, absolutely. And also my experience has been that B2B always takes a lot longer, the sales cycles and the bigger the company you sell to, or it's even worse if you ever sell to any government or (laughs) any bureaucratic department that said you need to have a good runway and watch your burn for any startup doing anything in that space. So yeah, so that's great. If you had to think back and if, I don't know, Mistakes is not the right word, but if you had to advise yourself as a younger John, what would advice would that be? Or if you're starting all over again, what would you do? Yeah, it's a great question. I try and ask myself that very regularly because I find, and I'm going to use the word quite openly, I find myself making the same mistakes time and time again. I think the biggest ones for me are figuring out who you are as a person and I'm not going to go all woo-woo on you here. I think there is a bit of a spiritual element to it, but a lot of the execution and success of these companies is about a team of people, certainly with some skills and capabilities, but a team of people who can just get on and they, they complement each other, not just in terms of their CV or their technical skills or their sales skills, but, but just in their ability to basically create a cohesive team. And what I mean by a cohesive team is that the people are, good people obviously they share the same values but they're also cohesive in the way that they operate in terms of things like receiving feedback giving feedback being open and honest because this is a game an early stage where every minute counts and you are going to make mistakes it's not about how to eliminate the mistakes it's how to minimize them and how to get onto them as quickly as you can 
before they start costing you real money and, and, and diversion from the right path. And ultimately, that just never comes down to anything but the, the, the team you have around you. And that's anything from the advisors or later on in the piece, the directors or the board that you have through to every employee. I always look back and say, if the people fit doesn't feel right, and this is not anything to do with the people not being good people or uh, that overall, but you've got to look at it quite specifically around what it is you're trying to create and say, how does yeah. the people dynamic look around that? I think that to me is the one that I always perhaps don't spend as much time on as I, I think I do now, but it's taken me 50 years to figure that out. Yeah. It is so interesting that you said this just two days ago. I was talking with like for the same podcast for this podcast, a Swedish investor who's based in Spain and who used to run an accelerator incubator a few years ago. And I was asking him, how do you choose a startup to invest in? And he said the same thing because at early stage, it's really hard to tell, but you do look at the team spirit that they have, because that is going to be vital to going to know if they are going to be able to go further or or end that they're working on the same vision and the mission but yeah you pretty much captured the you said it so much better than that yeah oh sure makes I'm sense sure I didn't, but I, i'm glad there's there's more than one of us on the same page but and the fascinating thing about it sam is that it, it really only becomes clear to you to your original question which is a great question is like what do you think about it now when you've been through the cycle of several companies and had a sample size yes. to compare, because I remember in one particular case sitting at a lunch with a founder group that I was part of, and one of the founders, a technical person, lovely man, very principled, and he said to me, he said there was a number of us as founders, and he said, John, you know, how do we make sure we all stay friends and we all stay as one team? And I said, Marco, the, the answer to that is that we won't be able to guarantee that we have to be able to do is have those conversations up front about what happens when yeah. we realize and sometimes it's a self it's a self-made decision someone says i just don't have the appetite for this or their, their personal circumstances change or so yeah. forth so i think if i was advising people in that early stage spend a bit of time not just on that people fit but once you do have the right people around you those open conversations about how are we going to deal with conflict how are we going to challenge ourselves about how well we're performing our own roles uh, in the business and what we agreed at the beginning versus now we've got to. And often these conversations get really challenging the better the business is done because you realise that some areas have done really well and some haven't, which usually quite often, almost always, uh, ends up being somebody has just not been able to level up to that next level of capability. And they're really hard conversations. I think if you've talked a little bit about the likelihood of them, which seems crazy at the start because you just don't have anything, right? But a little bit about the likelihood of those future scenarios and how you're going to handle them, I think everyone's a a lot better off. Very true. Before we finish this, I have three quick fire questions. And first one, is there a book that you are reading at the moment? The book I'm reading at the moment is Mark Benioff's autobiography, Mark's the founder of Salesforce.com. Yes. And I cannot remember the title for you uh, off the top of my head. It's, I can see what it looks like sitting on the side of my... I will put the links in the description yeah, of wherever this goes to. So, yeah, that's not a, a very good book and, a, and a, a great example of a purposeful organization in my, in my opinion, Salesforce.com. Yep, that is very cool. I was just looking at the first version of the first website of Salesforce and it is very interesting that it is very hard to see the vision and how things will 
turn out. This is from someone who is an investor. He is sharing that you can't tell from if you look at the first version of Salesforce that this is what it will become. So it is very hard to know at early stages. Second, is there a podcast that you do you recommend people should listen to? Yeah, it's probably uh, less aligned to tech and innovation directly, That's but fine. I, um, That's fine. I, I love Russell Brand's style of podcasting, actor, comedian, all-around crazy human, yeah, he's but, funny. but very, yes. very purposeful human, so he has yes. a series, Russell Brand. Yeah, that's my go-to at the moment and, and whenever he produces something new. Cool, I'll check it out. And final question, if you had unlimited time, money and resources, what would you build? I'm really aligned on this. I would actually just build Purpose Exchange, my new venture, faster. That is fantastic. That's really good to see that, yeah, you're completely, you're all in. You're fully bought in than that. So, well, either that or I've just got a long shopping list, Sam, of stuff that's either going to cost me a lot of money or time that uh, <laughs> is immediately in the, in the front of my head. <laughs> It is. Um, it has been very interesting. I one thing I want to after this, like after I've recorded a few hundred episodes over the next year or two, is I want to make a database and just split out how many founders. Because there's only two answers that I've got so far in first twenty interviews. Um, about sixty percent say that they are they want to just build what they already want to and then the other 40 percent say that they it's rockets or space that, yeah. that's the only two i've got <laughs> there is um, no third answer i've got so far no no and i, I yeah, it would be really interesting but i'd say it's a pretty small spreadsheet because you only have two columns <laughs> i only need two columns yes it's either space and rockets or it is what their current project because they so believe in it. They're so passionate about it. So that's the only two. But yeah, anyway, it is fantastic to to learn a bit more and to get a bit more insight for, into your journey. And I'm sure quite a few founders who are listening to this would get that insight as well. Finally, if someone wants to connect with you, reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So they can reach me on John, J-O-H-N, at for landing pad or the real deep entrepreneurial stuff, klp.org.nz. Or anyone interested in Purpose Exchange, I'm talking to anybody about that in terms of their views about how companies deliver on their purpose as well as their profit. That's John, J-O-H-N, at purposeexchange2e.com. Fantastic. I'll put all those links underneath as well. Thank you once again for your time and have a lovely rest of the day. Thanks, Sam. Great chatting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.